0: Thank you very much. I it's exciting. I think I've said it probably publicly before, i said it to some of you. I feel every time we gather together, there is such a sense of anticipation and excitement. And uh, I love the idea of fun. I'd love it if we were the venue that were known for, um, for being great fun. That's just really fantastic. Um, let me just quickly introduce myself. and be some of you here who won't know me so well. Um, As Steve says, I'm Andrew. Uh, I'm part of the leadership team at King's and I have a kind of two-part role. Half of what I do is on the admin and operations side. So I'm responsible for making things happen, especially our meetings and our big events. And the other half of my role is more on the ministry side, really thinking about how do we disciple people? How do we help people be faithful followers of Jesus to enjoy life with God, as I like to put it, Um, a lot of which involves teaching in different contexts. And um, I've been really fortunate, really privileged to grow up in King's Church. I think literally from birth, uh, my parents were and still are members of the church. In fact, some of you in this room would have known me from birth, I guess, Um, and have been part of the church all that time. um, I moved up to the northeast, to a place called Darlington, for four years, working initially for a church for a year on a gap year program, and then studying theology at Durham University for three years. And then I moved back down about two and a half years ago now and have been on the team then, and I'm just really excited about this new phase of, uh, of life really for us as King's Church. I'm really excited about Bexhill, and really the Bexhill thing for me grew out of a conversation over a dinner just, well a year and a half ago now I guess, I'd come over to speak to the community group, many of you would have been there and was having dinner with Ian and Claire before, and just asked them, I said well how's Bexhill going, kind of what's it like doing a uh, you know, community group in Bexhill, and there's this one comment they made which is that like the really difficult thing of being part of King's Church in Bexhill is that people in Bexhill think it's really odd to go to Hastings for things. And so actually to invite them to anything at the Hastings Centre, or right, anything we're doing at Hastings, just doesn't really work. And I just remember this instant sense of, we've got to do something in Bexhill. It was like this burden fell upon me of, we've got to do something in Bexhill, because there's thousands of people here who might never hear the Gospel actually, because we're all the way over there, and actually they need something here. Um, And so then as the news emerged about Bexhill and stuff, actually, I just felt this kind of uh, surge of faith, I guess, in my heart. And I'm just, as I say, so, so excited about what God is going to do amongst us. So privileged really to come and join those of you who are already here, those who have been faithfully serving, I know, in this town for many, many years. And just, yeah, looking forward to the months and years to come and what God is going to do. I'm really excited about my topic tonight. It's one of my favourite topics to talk about. If you were here last time, you would have heard Paul talking about the kind of overall vision of King's Church, that we want to build a healthy church, which is bringing the kingdom of God to Bexhill and Hastings and 1066 country. And he said in that there are three things that we want to do as a church which will help us achieve that. We want to make disciples. We want to care for the poor and we want to go on mission. And it's the first of those that I kind of want to focus on tonight about making disciples. A disciple is a learner, it was a word used for a pupil of a teacher in the ancient world in the time of Jesus. And one of the key things that we need to learn to living is a new identity that God has given us as Christians. The Bible tells us that becoming a Christian is a radical transformation. It's not just kind of having a bit of a spring clean, a bit of a renovation. Actually, it's being completely recreated. We become new creations, the Bible tells us. Another way Jesus talks about it in John 3 is that we're born again. And with being born again, you get a new life. And with a new life, you get a new identity. Every child who's born is born with certain facts about them which make up their identity. And that's why we have birth certificates. When a child is born in this country, they get a birth certificate. It has their name, the the place they're born, their parents, their parents' occupations. It's statements about their identity which have come as a result of this birth. And when we are reborn as Christians, in the same sort of way, it's like we get a new birth certificate, a new uh, statements about our identity. And it's so important that we learn the identity and learn to live it out. And if you read through the New Testament letters, the things written to churches 2,000 years ago, what happens time and time again is the believers are told you need to know who you are and then everything flows from that. How you live, what you do, everything flows from understanding who you are because of what God has now done in you. And the wonderful thing about this identity is it can't be changed. We can't actually lose it. It was never based on what we did in the first place so it's not now going to be lost based on what we've done. But actually we can miss out on it if we don't know about it. And if we don't choose to live it out. And so we as a church, we put a high value on understanding together what the Bible says about our identity and how we live it out. And I think actually it's one of the key things in our heritage for the last 42, 3, 4 years, whether it's been, we have been passionate about helping each other understand our identity in Christ and live it out. And I actually think it's wider than that as well. We as kings are part of New Ground, a family of churches, which is one part of a larger family called New Frontiers. And again, for the 40 plus years of New Frontiers history, knowing our identity in Christ, knowing what it is, living it out, enjoying life in that, has been just a kind of fundamental passion of ours. And that will hugely be the case as well for us in Bexhill. And so what I want to do this evening is to give you a quick whistle-stop tour of four of the most important elements of our identity as Christians. They actually all come from the middle chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, so chapters 5 to 8, when Paul's basically told them the wonderful news that although they'd rebelled against God and deserved his wrath, now in Jesus they can be justified, they can be declared in a right legal standing with God. And then he spends the next four chapters basically going, well, how can we know that for sure? What has God done? What's happened to us that means we can know with absolute certainty that we've been justified. So when we stand before Jesus on the last day, we will be welcomed in as those who have been made worthy to be with him for all eternity. And for each of these four things, we need to think about three different steps. There's kind of a a journey I think you go on with each of these to live them out and to enjoy them. The first thing is we've got to know the truth. The identity thing, it's already true of us. Just as a baby, the identity is true of them as soon as they're born, but they need to learn it. We first need to know it. And a helpful illustration here, if you think about a child who has unexpectedly become an heir to a fortune, that has happened in the moment that their relative has died. They've become the heir, but actually they might not know that straight away. It's legally true of them. They have all the money, all the properties, whatever it might be, but the first step is they've got to know actually that that is true. But the next thing is that we've got to believe the truth because knowing can be quite kind of abstract. I know this is true over there. I know this is true as a fact. Actually, believing says, I know this is true for me. I know that this has happened to me. This is about me. With the kid, it would be him not just believing it happened, not just seeing the paperwork, but thinking actually this is true about me. That's me. This stuff is now mine. And then it goes from knowing to believing to then acting on the truth. There are actually practical things we have to do sometimes to say, this is who I am, and now this is how I'm going to live that out. That kid who's inherited the fortune needs to start spending some of the money or going to some of the properties before he's actually going to enjoy what he's got. He can know it, he can believe it, but until he acts on it, it's not going to make any difference to his life. It's so true for our identity. We need to know and believe, but then we have to choose to act, actually to live it out and to enjoy it. So let me give you the first of these key elements of our identity. The first one is that we have freedom from condemnation. The Bible is really clear that we all start in a really bad place, a really bad situation. We've all done wrong and actually we all deserve to be punished by God. The world tends to paint a really positive view of humans. We're the ones who are kind of conquering the world and inventing things and we think that nothing can stop us and that we're these wonderful creatures. Actually, the Bible presents a much more negative picture of us because we've turned away from the one who created us. Paul talks about this at the very beginning of Romans. He says actually God creates the world and the world around us shows us that he exists and it shows us something of what he's like and the natural thing we as humans should do is to worship him and love him and thank him for all he's done. But actually what we do is we worship things down here rather than worshipping him. We worship the created, Paul says, rather than the creator. And that at its core is what sin is. The word sin means missing the mark. We miss the mark that God has set by the fact we worship created things, power and work and money and sex and relationships, rather than worshipping the God who created us. And later in Romans, in the Romans 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death. The wages, the kind of payment you get in return for it, is death. That's where we all start. We all just start deserving death, and not just physical death, but spiritual death, the separation from God. But then the wonderful good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, is that God wasn't happy to abandon us to the mess that we got ourselves into. He was determined to come and to rescue us from that position. And that's what he does in Jesus. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, and he takes on himself all our sin, all our failure to worship the one who created us, all our rebellion against him. And when we repent, which means we turn 180 degrees away from our old life, we put our trust in Jesus' promise to rescue us. All of what we've done wrong gets placed on Jesus. And as he hung on the cross, he experienced all the wrath of God, all God's just and fair anger and punishment against our sin. All of it gets poured out on him, gets dealt with by him. That wages of sin, which was death, gets poured on Jesus. He experiences the death that we deserve so that we can go through. The Bible talks about it, Paul talks in Colossians, about it being a whole list of debts against us. But that Jesus actually nails that to the cross. He kind of wipes the slate clean so all our debts are cleared. We repent and we believe all we've done, all the wrong things we've done, all the things that deserve condemnation are totally dealt with. And Paul going to go through this journey in Romans 1 and he explains what Jesus has done in the middle. And by the beginning of Romans 8, he can make, he can make this amazing statement. He says, "There is now, now, There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a categorical statement and it is incredible in view of what he's already said. He says, What God has done in Jesus means there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he's really emphatic there. He's literally saying there's not one bit of condemnation left. All of it is taken away. And the wonderful thing is, nothing we do can make a difference to this. It never happened to us based on what we've done. Therefore, what we now do doesn't affect it. We don't have to be worthy enough, we never were. We never will be, we never could be. Actually, it's all a gift given to us by God, freely received, and we just say, I trust in the promise that God has made to me. And the Bible says that now we are no longer sinners. We used to be sinners. Our identity was defined by our rebelling against God. But now the Bible says we are saints. We're holy ones, people are set apart, people made perfect by God. It's a part of our identity. It's unchangeable. This means that as Christians, we never need and never should actually feel guilty again. Even when we do things wrong, we know that Jesus has already paid the price. We know it's already dealt with. God doesn't look at us and what we do. He looks at Jesus and what he has already done. And so we need to know this. We need to know that Jesus died to pay the price for sins. He was a substitute, one who came in the place of others. And then we need to believe it and say, Jesus died for me, all my sin, all the muck and mess in my life, past, present, future has been placed on Jesus, has been dealt with on the cross. And then actually we need to choose to live in it. We need to act. One of the ways we do that actually is when we know we sin, we choose to run straight back to him. We don't kind of do a bit of penance and feel a bit guilty for a while and after I've been miserable for long enough, I can go back to God because I made up for it. No, no, we say, I know that Jesus took all of that mess and muck on himself, on the cross, it's already dealt with. I'm running back to my heavenly father whose arms are open wide, ready to receive me. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth, one of the pinnacles of what God's done for us. As a Christian, we will never, ever, ever come under God's condemnation again. It's a fundamental fact of who we are and how we now live our life. Which leads us to the second thing. Because you might be thinking, well, if that's true, if we can never again come under condemnation, no matter what we do, then surely we can do whatever we want. Surely we've got the freedom to do whatever we feel like, just going and enjoy ourselves. It's going to make no difference to our position before God, Surely. And if that's what you're thinking, you've kind of almost understood the gospel. God's grace is that outrageous. It is that incredible. But actually, if that's what you go and do, you're going to really miss out. Because actually, God has done even more for us than just free us uh, from condemnation. He's also freed us from the power of sin. He's freed us so that we can live his way, the way that we're going to find true life and true fulfilment. Often we think that freedom means the kind of ability to go and do whatever I like, whenever I feel like it, whatever it might be, and that's where I'm going to find true joy and true life and true fulfilment. But actually true freedom is found in living in line with how we're created to live. Think about a fish. We might think that a sense of freedom would be being out in a beautiful open meadow and the breeze is kind of swaying the flowers and it's all wonderful and I feel so free. Take a fish in that context. He's not going to feel very free for very long. He's not going to feel very much at all for very long. That's because fish are designed to live in water. The place that a fish finds fullness of life and freedom is in water because he's created to live in water. The place, the way of living life that we will find true freedom, true fulfilment, true fullness of life is in living God's way. That's why God has freed us from the power of sin so we can live his way. It's not that as Christians we uh, have to not sin. It's that as Christians we get to not sin. And Paul talks about this in uh, Romans 6. He starts with a similar statement to the one I made before. He says, well, if sin shows God's goodness and God's grace, surely we should keep on doing it, right? And then he goes, no, no, that's not it. You haven't understood what God has done for you if that's how you're thinking. He explains we've been united to Christ. When we turn to Christ and put our faith in Him, we are, as He puts it, in Christ. That means that you and Christ become inseparably linked. It's a connection that can never be broken. Another way the Bible talks about it is we are hidden in Christ. That means when God looks at you, He sees Christ. And it means that everything that Christ has been through, we have been through with Him. And so Paul explains that because we've been united to Christ, when Christ died, we died with Him. And when Christ was in the grave, We were in the grave with him. And when Christ was raised back to life, we were raised back to life with him. And he says in Romans 6, if we've died with Jesus, we've died to the power of sin. He says our old self, the old person, was crucified with Jesus so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Previously, we were enslaved. Sin kind of had this power over us. It was like this creature who could make us do its bidding. But now we've died to sin that power is completely broken it has no say over us anymore in the second half of Romans 6 Paul uses the picture the imagery of slavery and a slave has to follow what their slave master says that's part of their identity really it's what they have to do previously our slave master was sin we basically had to do what sin said we were led away by it we were misled by it It had power to make us do things but now Paul says we've died with Christ And when a slave dies, they're no longer under their earthly slave master. We've died with Christ and we're no longer under the slave master of sin. Now, actually, Paul says, we are slaves of God. We are slaves of right living. That means that the power over us now is God and right living to help us live God's way. And again, this is the thing we need to know, that when we die with Christ, we die to sin. We need to believe that we, having some way died with Christ, that that power of sin has been broken over us. And then it's something that we need to act on. We need to live out. And the way that Paul describes this is he tells us we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That means we choose to believe it and we choose to act on it regardless of how we feel it. To reckon it means I'm going to live it as true even when I don't feel as if it's true. It's a bit like if you had amnesia and you forget everything about your life. These things people are telling you about your life are still true actually even though you don't feel like it. And one approach to solving that would be to reckon it as true and to choose to live out what people are telling you was your identity, even if actually you can't remember that and it doesn't feel like that. That means that when we're tempted to sin, what we now do is we remind ourselves that we've died to it. That actually our fundamental identity is we're no longer enslaved to sin, Then now we're being freed from that. Now we're slaves to God. That means that however strong the temptation might feel, we don't have to do it. That sin has no power over us to tell us to do anything, no ability to control us anymore. And when we do this, we'll find it's true freedom because it allows us to live in the way that God has made us to live. And that's where we find true fulfilment, true life, true joy. God not just gives us freedom from condemnation of sin. He also frees us from the power of sin. That's the second part of our identity. The third one is freedom from the law. Because the next thing you might be thinking is, well, surely God gave lots of laws. Surely we're meant to follow those, the Ten Commandments. Surely we're meant to follow the Ten Commandments. But actually, the next thing Paul says in Romans 7 is we've also been set free from the power of the law. When he talks about the law, he's talking about a whole bunch of rules given by God to Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament, But actually for our purposes we can put under that bracket any rules and laws and regulations we give ourselves which we do to try and make us better before God. Things that we think kind of commend us to him and make us better people so God will love us more and will bless us more. See there's a big problem with using law. The problem with law is it doesn't help you do anything. There's no power in law to actually help you live any way to actually do anything. Actually what often happens is that when you lay down a law the opposite is what happens. People naturally rebel against laws. It's what we all know about kids. Give a kid a rule, and often, actually, what they want to do is to rebel against it. And I read about a great science experiment that illustrated this a little while ago, where they had a room, uh, and they sent a child, children in, one at a time, and in this room was a table of toys. And on the table of toys was a plate of sweets. And half the children, they told them they could go in the room and play with the toys, and they didn't mention the sweets at all. The other half of the children, they told them, go in, play with the toys, but they said, don't eat any of the sweets. All of the children to whom the sweets weren't mentioned didn't even touch the sweets. All of the children to whom the sweets are mentioned ate at least some of the sweets. There's something about laying down laws which causes something in us to come up that we actually kind of want to rebel against them. Law gives us no power to change. And Paul, in Romans and other places, he talks about three different things the law actually does do. Three reasons why God gave the law. He said actually the law reveals sin. When we compare the law, how we should live, with how we actually live, we suddenly realise we're in a bad position. It's a bit like if you do a quiz and you think you've done really well, so you get the marking sheet, you put it next to it and you realise, I've not done so well. The perfect law comes next to our lives and we realise, man, I'm in trouble. I can't live like this, I haven't lived like this, I'm not going to be able to live like this. It reveals to us our sin. But also, Paul says, it does provoke sin. It does that thing we just talked about with laying down the rules of those children, Somehow that power sin, the, the sin that had power over us, used the law to provoke us to do things, to tempt us, to draw us away from God's way. The law actually provokes us to sin. But then the third thing that Paul tells us is that the law leads us to Jesus. He calls it a, a guarding at one point, a guy, literally is the word for the guy who walked you to school. The law is the thing which leads us to Jesus, shows us our need for a saviour, and to cry out, who's going to rescue me from this? And then we realise it's Jesus. So the law actually basically makes our situation a lot worse. In Romans 7, Paul says that just as we being united with Christ, we died with Christ and that power of sin over us was broken. In the same way, the power of the law over us was broken. When you die, you'll no longer be under the law of this land because you're dead and the law has been broken over you. And Paul says in the same way, when you died with Christ, actually the power that these laws had over you has been broken. That means that the law can no longer point its accusing finger at us. That actually the law is no longer able or allowed and doesn't have the right and authority to remind us of all the times we fall short, all the things we do wrong, all the things that make God angry at us. Because actually we've died to it. We've died to its power. And now Paul says actually we live a totally different way. We don't live by having a long list of laws and trying really hard to keep them. Actually now we walk in a new way, he says. The new way of the Spirit and not of the written code. The way that we manage to live out God's way, that way we're made to live, is by recognising identity has changed, you've been freed from the power of sin, and now by God's Holy Spirit working in us, we are empowered and transformed and enabled to live his way. We might still find useful guidelines in the Bible. It's helpful to look at biblical law as like wisdom rather than law, wisdom for actually how life can work well, but actually on their own, they're never going to help us do anything. We need the work of the Holy Spirit and our transformed identity to empower us to live that out. And then the final uh, part of identity I want to talk about is a bit different. All the others have been freedom from something, from condemnation, from the power of sin, from the accusations of the law. The final one is freedom for something. It's freedom to be a child of God. This is the glorious pinnacle of what God has done for us, the wonderful kind of mounting top. Uh, a vista of what God has done in our new identity. God could have just freed us from condemnation and left us there because he didn't even have to do that. He could have just freed us from the power of sin. He could have just freed us from the power of the law but actually amazingly he then chooses to draw us in, to adopt us as his own children and all the New Testament letters are in agreement that every Christian has been adopted by God as his child and in the time of Jesus the ancient world adoption just like today was a legal reality. When you were adopted, you were considered as much a child of the uh, the uh, couple as any biological child they had, of all the same rights and um, all the same kind of uh, places of being an heir in heir and different things. Your uh, situation was permanent and secure. I think adoption these days has been cheapened by the fact that we can adopt a panda for a year or a piece of the moon and stuff, and if you stop paying, it's gone. That's not what adoption is about. Adoption is permanent and stable and secure. God isn't going to stop paying for your adoption after a few years' time. If you're adopted as a child of God, that can never be changed. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, now we are, that this happens when the Holy Spirit comes to living side of us. The spirit of adoption, he calls him. And there are blessings that Paul talks about, things that happen to us when we become children of God. The first one is that we get freedom from fear. Paul says, we've not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've received a spirit of adoption. And the fear he's talking about there probably is this fear of God's condemnation. That thing of, have I actually done enough? Or, or is God angry for me, with me for that thing I've done? Actually, no, he says, it's not a spirit of fear. It's not slavery. It's a spirit of adoption, freedom from fear. Also, it brings to us wonderful intimacy with God. The spirit of adoption, we're told, causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Father. And Abba is an Aramaic word that's one of the languages spoken by Jesus and the Jews of his day. And it's a word which speaks of incredible kind of family intimacy. It was used by both childs and adults and it's a bit like our modern day word daddy. It speaks of that wonderful, close, intimate connection between a child and their father. And Paul says that as the spirit of adoption works in our hearts, this kind of outburst comes of Abba, Daddy, Father, as we know intimacy with him. And the final blessing Paul talks about in Romans 8 is inheritance. Being a child of God makes us an heir of God. Heirs we're told of God and fellow heirs co-heirs with Christ. We become the people who one day have the guaranteed promise that we will inherit the fulfilment of every promise that God has made. All his promises to restore, all the brokenness, all the mess and the muck that we've put into the world, all the damage done by sin will one day be reversed. When God brings a perfect new creation, new physical bodies, and we as his people inherit all of that And get to live as his children in this new creation and perfection with him for all eternity. And Paul, calling the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, he says the spirit comes to the living side of us to remind us of this identity. He kind of nudges us, he sits there poking, he's like that annoying child who sits there poking all the time saying, don't forget you're a child of God, don't forget God loves you, don't forget God's never angry with you. He loves you as the perfect father, the perfect daddy. Sometimes the sad fact is things in our life, things, uh, kind of experiences we go through can stop us from believing this truth, can make it difficult for us to experience it and to live it out. Often, most of us, I think, will have people we need to forgive, actually, things we need to work through. Sometimes we've got past hurts and pains which kind of create barriers here that we have to allow God and his gentleness to walk us through and to heal so we can really experience what it means to be a child of God as a fundamental part of our identity. But the wonderful promise for every Christian is that this is true of us and this is the glorious pinnacle of the identity that we live everything else from, that every person who puts their faith in Jesus is adopted as his child and welcomed into that wonderful, wonderful relationship of intimacy. So there are four key things of our identity. I could go on all night with many more but I won't. But the one last thing I want to say about all of these, the freedom from condemnation, from the power of sin, from the law, the freedom to be a child of God, is that they can never, ever be changed. When you've been born again and given this identity, they can never be changed because, as I've said before, it wasn't based on what you did which got you into that place in the first place. And therefore, what you do now can't change them. And as I said, what we, or we can miss out on the good of them, actually, if we don't know them and don't believe them and don't choose to act on them but they're all still always true. We know that because of what becoming a Christian is. To be born again is to give this new identity. There are certain fundamental facts about a child's identity when they're born, which will never be changed. They can never be changed because it's happened through their birth. In the same way, there are fundamental facts of who we are, as though if we've been born of the water and the Spirit, as Jesus puts it, born again, that can never be changed. The other reason is because of what Paul talks about, with this being in Christ, that this inseparable union has taken place. If you and Christ joined together, can never be broken. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great thing. He says, when you're in Christ, you can't be hopping in and out of Christ willy-nilly. You are there. You are stuck there. It is inseparable. It is irreversible. Your identity can never, ever be changed again. And the wonderful thing of being in Christ, being united to him, is that we get to experience all that is his. God looks at us. God sees Jesus. Everything that he deserves becomes ours. We inherit it through him. This is true for all of us individually. Just for worshipping tonight, I just felt God... There was a real tenderness, actually, some of the moments in our worship tonight. I just believe that tonight. God is just tenderly speaking some of these truths into our heart. And these things transform the way you live your life. They sound so simple, yet they transform your experience of life. They're vital to us in this room, just as Christians tonight. They're vital to us as we seek to be a church together, as we seek to love each other and encourage each other and spur each other on. All of that flows from reminding each other of our identity. And they're going to be as fundamental to how we run Kingsbex Hill, how we operate as a church. Fundamental to our worship, will be recognising who we are and how we're the children of God to get to come before him and worship him and pour out our love and our devotion and our thanksgiving in, uh, in response to what we've done. And I think that'd be a great way just to finish. Just, if you guys are in the band, we'll head back up. we we'll just sing one song just as a way of just expressing our thanks, our love, our devotion to God for all that he has done for us. And just to give the Holy Spirit room to be working these things deeper into our hearts as we do that. Can I invite you to stand? I'd love to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would come and bring revelation to us. And then I'll hand over to the wonderful worship team. Father, we do thank you for these glorious, glorious truths. Thank you that you, totally of your own initiative, totally of your own choice, totally of your own desire, have utterly transformed us. You have made us new creations, born again to a new life with a new identity. Thank you, you freed us from condemnation that we can never, ever, ever, yeah. ever again come under your condemnation. No matter what we do, we stand under a, like a shower, a waterfall of your grace. Sin is non-stick for us now. We are Teflon to sin, never again to have it cling to us. Thank you, you freed us from the power of sin. That when we feel tempted, we can say, No, you've got no power. I don't have to do that. I've died to the power of sin. I now live as a slave of God, a slave to righteousness. Thank you, that the law no longer has the right to come and accuse us when we do things wrong. It no longer has any uh, power to come and try and make us try hard and feel like we're failing, but that now you come and empower us by your Holy Spirit. And I thank you that each one of us stands as your kids, loved. Cared for, knowing intimacy with you, freedom from fear, being welcomed in. And right now, Holy Spirit, I pray, just come, even as we worship, even as we go away from this place tonight, would you come and work these truths deep into our heart, that we'll be utterly transformed by knowing who we are, by believing it, and by living it out. We stand in awe and wonder at what you've done for us, and we just long to live in the good of it and to express our love. And our worship to yes. you and our thanksgiving. Yes, we love you, Lord God. Thank we you. thank you so much, Lord God. Amen. singing, Christ alone.